Now, way back in 1997, I was working as a customs officer and I'd been given a project to do which involved organising a major uh, kind of publicity event in Newcastle. And to prepare for this, the head of external affairs of what was then Customs and Excise, a guy called Ken Duncan, he came up from London uh, on the train to have a meeting with me and with my boss. So I had to pick this guy up from Central Station and he was like seven or eight ranks above me and even uh, above my boss as well for that matter. So I had to go and pick this guy up from Central Station. And then we were going to wait at Central Station for about half an hour, and then my boss was going to meet us there, we were going to have coffee, we were going to have a meeting, and then this guy was going to go back to London. This was kind of pre-Zoom days, of course, you had to meet people face to face. The problem was, on that particular day, there had been some major delays on the East Coast main line. And so when I arrived at the station there in, in Newcastle Central Station, it was just complete carnage and chaos. There were just hundreds of thousands of people everywhere. And when I pulled up in the car park, my first problem was that I realized I didn't have any money to park. I was kind of, I don't know what I was thinking I was going to do, but I, think, I thought I'm, I would just kind of pull up and this guy would jump in my car and off we would drive. So I had no money. That was my first problem. So I abandoned my car on these double yellow lines, and then this uh, traffic attendant came sort of rushing up to sort of tell me to move. So I got my, my, my badge out, my customs badge, sort of flashed it at her, and she was like, oh, okay, right. So off I ran, looking as if I was on some big drugs raid in the uh, central station. And then she looked very impressed, and, and, and I had to keep running and looking as if I was still doing something kind of really important. And then once she'd sort of stopped looking, I slowed down, got into the station, and just saw thousands of people. And I realized in that moment that I had no clue what this guy, Ken Duncan, looked like. I had no clue. I didn't know what he looked like at all. I'd never seen him. Spoken to him on the phone, but I had no idea what he looked like. And all I knew was that he had a Scottish accent and that he was about 50. But as I looked around the station that morning, there were lots of men, about 50, in suits looking like civil servants. And so I sort of stood there and thought, ah. Oh. And then as I was kind of standing there wondering what I was going to do, I heard this guy kind of, I saw this guy walking towards me and I heard him speak and he had a Scottish accent. Oh, fantastic. I found Ken. This is amazing. And he was kind of dressed in the right, he was this kind of right suit and briefcase, looked very white tall and all that kind of thing. So I walked up to this guy, introduced myself, said, hi, I'm Andy. Uh, good to meet you. Told him that I'd, that I'd illegally parked my car. I didn't have any money, any chance he could give me some money so I could just go and sort the ticket out. Yeah, of course, he said. So he handed me some money. I raced off, parked my car, paid for it, came back and then carried on chatting to my new friend, Ken, as we waited for my boss. And then as we chatted, we kind of make conversation. I was talking about a big drugs operation that we'd had recently in the Northeast, uh, which he seemed just really fascinated by. And as we chatted, we both slowly began to realize that neither of us were who the other one thought we were. <laughs> he wasn't Ken Duncan from Customs and Excise in London. And despite what he thought, I wasn't from Northumbria Police. He, he, he worked at, he turned out he worked for the Home Office and he was meant to be meeting a guy from the police. So we were both very embarrassed, more so me, as we realized that we'd been chatting to the wrong person for 20 minutes and that I got money off this guy to pay for my <laughs> car. The real Ken Duncan did turn up a little bit later on and, and this time I got the right guy and we all lived happily, uh, happily ever after, as they say. But as you can imagine, I got some stick and abuse from my boss uh, and all the other guys in the office who never let me, never ever let me forget that, um, ever. You know, people's identity really, really matters. People's identity really matters. And I got the wrong guy and he got the wrong guy. We both got the wrong guy and it could have had really serious consequences for us, couldn't it? If we're going to meet someone new and trust someone new, then it's really important that we know who they are and also that they know who we are. 
From today until mid-July, we're going to be studying John's account of the life of Jesus in the New Testament of the Bible, John's Gospel. John was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and we're picking up where we left off last year from John chapter 10. And right at the heart of the passage that we're looking at today in John chapter 10 is this whole issue of identity, particularly Jesus' identity, and also our identity. Immediately before the passage that we're about to read, Jesus had healed a man who'd been born blind. But this had provoked real controversy because the Jewish religious authorities led by this group called the Pharisees, who were kind of real ultra um, kind of conservative religious group uh, within Judaism. They just couldn't accept that Jesus had healed the man and they wouldn't accept that Jesus was who he said he was. And that the blind man uh, was uh, what the blind man said about Jesus. They just wouldn't accept it. And so Jesus accused all these people, particularly these religious leaders, he accused them of being spiritually blind. They just couldn't see the reality of who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. And so Jesus immediately, after calling them spiritually blind, he then immediately uses a kind of figure of speech to make his point and kind of underline it. And then because they still didn't understand what Jesus was saying, he then kind of unpacked it and explained it to them. Before we read what Jesus said that day, we need to go back into the Old Testament of the Bible and read what God had said to the people of Israel through a guy called Ezekiel about 600 years earlier before Jesus was born. I'm going to read bits of Ezekiel 34. And if you're really brave and you don't want to make a fool of yourself trying to find Ezekiel, which is always a bit embarrassing, it's next to Daniel if that helps, which it won't, um, you can just listen and uh, listen as I read it if that's easier. If you've got a phone, it's probably easier for you to find it. Now, the context here is that God is speaking to the nation of Israel through this prophet Ezekiel, and he's criticizing the religious leaders of the day for the fact that they were bad shepherds of the people of Israel. He kind of likens the leaders to being shepherds, and he likens the people to being like sheep. And God speaks through Ezekiel, and he criticizes the the leaders as being bad shepherds. They were really bad shepherds. So let's read Ezekiel 34. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 16, and then we're going to jump down a little bit and read 23 to 31. So this is what God says. This is 600 years before Jesus um, came into the world. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So not literal sheep shepherds, but the spiritual leaders that he's likening to be like shepherds. Okay, Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered, and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds, and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, 
so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land and there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And then down to verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forests in safety. I will bless them and the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. So here in Ezekiel, God says that he himself will come down and be the shepherd to his people to replace these bad shepherds, the religious leaders of Israel. But then he also says that he's going to send King David to be their shepherd king. Now, David had long since died when Ezekiel wrote these words, when God spoke through Ezekiel. So who is God talking about when he talks about King David? Well, he's talking about Jesus because Jesus was the physical, literal descendant of King David. And David is often used as kind of code or kind of picture, a symbol of Jesus when it talks about him in the Bible. So on the one hand, God says, I am going to come and be, my, be the shepherd of my people. But also he says, I'm going to send David. David is going to come and he is going to be king. So let's read what Jesus says in response to this, or as Jesus kind of cuts in. As we read this passage in John 10 that we're, that we're starting in John this is Jesus speaking to these groups of religious leaders, and they would have known this passage in Ezekiel. They would have been really, really familiar with it. They would have known this really, really well. And so when Jesus starts talking to them and, and, and kind of quoting these words to them, they should have immediately understood what Jesus was saying to them. Okay, So Jesus had just healed this man born blind. They didn't accept that Jesus had done this or that Jesus was who he was. And so Jesus says this to them. John chapter 10, verse 1. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters the gate is the shepherd, by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. 
I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So as the religious leaders listened to Jesus, they would have been really familiar with this passage in Ezekiel. And they should have understand what Jesus was saying because Jesus was claiming to be the very fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus was saying that he was both God, the spiritual shepherd of the nation of Israel, but also he was their king. He was the shepherd king that had come to rule and reign. He was the, the descendant of David, the rightful heir to the throne. Jesus was the shepherd king. Jesus was here making a massive claim about his own identity in this passage. He's claiming to be God, and he's claiming to be the fulfillment of the prophecy that a descendant of David's would come and would rule and reign. This passage is, is really all about Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? But also about our identity. Who are we? Where do we fit in this uh, kind of story that Jesus tells, this, this kind of figure of speech that he uses? And what is our relationship with Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who are we? And what is our relationship with him? Before we look at this passage in detail, it's helpful to know a little bit about how shepherds functioned in the first century AD in the Middle East when Jesus was speaking these words. A shepherd would live out on the hills pretty much all year round and the sheep would get to know the voice of the shepherd. The shepherd would sleep there with the sheep. He would, they would know him and they would follow him wherever he went. Wherever he went, they would hear his voice and they would follow him. It's not like shepherds in this country who are at the back of a flock of sheep and they drive the sheep and they were sheep dogs. This would be the opposite. The shepherd would live with them and they would know his voice and they would follow him. And then at night, the shepherd would usually take the sheep into a sheep pen, which would often be shared by other shepherds with their flocks as well. And the sheep pen was there to provide safety from, from wolves and from thieves and, and robbers. And there was only one way into the pen, which was by the door or the gate. And the walls of the pen were really high, which kept the, the sheep inside safe. And the shepherd would lead his sheep in at night for protection. And then he would lead them out during the daytime to the kind of feed on the grass and when he was taking his sheep out of the sheep pen the shepherd would call to the sheep and the ones that were his would know his voice and so they would separate themselves naturally from the from the other flocks that were in the sheep pen they would follow him out of the pen into the pasture and Jesus uses this kind of imagery which would have been really familiar with the people listening because it was kind of part of everyday life for them and he used this imagery to claim that he was the great shepherd king that God had promised way back in the Old Testament, specifically there in Ezekiel. Because the, the leaders of Israel and, and, and the Pharisees were spiritually blind. They just couldn't understand who Jesus was. They just couldn't get it. They just couldn't accept it. 
And Jesus was saying, look, you're not just spiritually blind, you're also spiritually deaf because you're not listening to me either. And they seem to miss the fact as well that Jesus was actually accusing them of being the thieves and the robbers in the story. Jesus was being quite insulting to them, really. And so to make sure they understood what he was saying, Jesus then elaborated on what he said. And he uses three uh, images or, or sort of word pictures in this passage to, to make his points. He says, firstly, I am the gate. And then he says, I'm the good shepherd. And then he says that those who trust in him are his sheep. Jesus says, firstly, I am the gate. But what does he mean when he says that? Well, look at verse 7. All the verses will be up on the screen. There's an outline in your seat as well if you want to make use of that. Jesus said this. It says this in verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who have ever come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So when Jesus says, I am the gate, he's claiming to be the means and the only means by which people can be saved. He's claiming to be the only means by which sheep, in other words, humans can enter the sheep pen, in other words, Jesus and, and God's salvation and be safe. And it's a picture of what Jesus offers everybody today. It's a picture of the, the salvation that God is offering to us through Jesus. He offers us safety and he offers us protection from the power of sin, but also the penalty of sin. The penalty for sin is eternal separation from God forever in a place the Bible calls hell, which is a place of eternal punishment. And Jesus is saying here that he is the gate. He's the, the means by which we access safety and salvation. He's the means by which we get saved from our sins and from the punishment and the penalty of our sins. There's no other way to get this. There's no other way to receive this other through the, than through and by Jesus. He's the only way that we can be saved. Only Jesus can do this. He says, I am the gate. And it's been fantastic today, hasn't it, to watch Rachel publicly declare that she has trusted. There you are, Rachel. Just kind of looking around for you. There you are. To, to, to publicly declare that she's trusted in Jesus uh, as the gate. And she might not have used those words, Jesus is the gate, but that's what she's done. She's trusted in Jesus as being the means to which she can have her sins forgiven, have a relationship with God, and one day spend eternity uh, with him. All the other religious leaders before Jesus, including those he was talking to right there in front of him, were like thieves and robbers, according to Jesus, trying to break into the sheep pen, and all they did was cause harm. What they had been trying to do to the people was sort of force a religious system, a kind of warping of what, the, what God had taught uh, in the Old Testament. And they were really just after sort of looking after their own interest and, and trying to secure their own status and position and power and financial wealth as well. And what Jesus was saying to them was that they were all false. They were false and they were harmful, but only he was the true way to be saved and to receive God's salvation and blessings. And nothing has changed. Because every other kind of religious system, every other kind of worldview or way of living only ever causes the kind of damage that a thief does. And no matter how sincere people might be in, in trusting in something, Jesus says, anything other than me is like the thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy. And, th and thieves do that. They come to steal, they come to kill and destroy. And that's what religion does. And it's what any other kind of belief system other than simply putting our faith and trust in Jesus does. It's only Jesus that saves and it's only Jesus that brings real life. 
And you know, this morning, I don't know everybody here this morning, if you're trying to find life, if you're trying to find meaning, if you're trying to find purpose and even acceptance from God in anything or anyone other than Jesus, then you need to know that whatever you're trusting in will only really in the end steal, kill, and destroy. It might promise a lot, but ultimately it will only steal, kill, and destroy. Because only Jesus can bring us life. Only Jesus can give us forgiveness and reconcile us, as Matt was saying earlier, to God and give us that eternal life. And the kind of life that Jesus brings, if we trust in him, as Rachel has done, which we've celebrated this morning, is real life. And, and Rachel's going to refer to that, hasn't she, in her testimony. It's abundant life. It's not just kind of a mediocre living. It's real, rich, and, and, and abundant life. Jesus says that he is the means by which the sheep, like us, can find rich green pastures and have life to the full. Just as a sheep wants to be in that field with, with, with loads of great green grass, Jesus says, look, I'm the means by which you can have that lush pasture in life. You can have abundant life, life to the full. Now, being a Christian isn't just about having eternal life when we die. It's not just something we just have to kind of hunker down for the next 20, 30 years, and then when we die, we'll go to be with God, and then it will get good. Well, that, there is some truth in that. It will get good. It will be amazing. But actually, that is kind of missing the point. Eternal life starts the moment we trust in Jesus. And it's about having an amazing quality of life right now. Life to the full, abundant life is what Jesus says. The problem is that lots of Christians have grasped the eternal life bit, the kind of life at the end, but they haven't grasped the concept of living life to the full right now. And some Christians I know are the most miserable people on the planet, despite the fact that they should be the most happy, joyous people. They haven't grasped the concept of having life to the full. And if you're a Christian this morning and you're not enjoying being in a relationship with Jesus, then can I respectfully say that something is really wrong? Because you should be living your best life. It doesn't mean that it's going to be wonderful and you're going to be rich and healthy and wealthy. Not at all. But you are living, if you profess to be in, in, in Jesus, you are living the best life you possibly could, or you should be. You should be living abundant life, a full life right now. Doesn't mean that we won't face difficulties. Doesn't mean that we won't face hardships and challenges. We most definitely will. But what I'm saying is that being in relationship with Jesus should mean that we are living our best life. It's meant to be life to the full. We should be enjoying life. We should be enjoying Jesus every day. It's meant to be abundant life. Some Christians are like sheep that have entered into the safety of the sheep pen through trusting in Jesus, but they then never used Jesus as the gate during the daytime, kind of using Jesus' picture to go out into the pasture and enjoy the abundant life that he gives to the sheep. And I guess that, some, that there's a whole variety of reasons why that can happen. Sometimes it's because of sin. Sometimes it's because of laziness and sometimes it's because of a lack of faith despite having entrusted in jesus some christians seem to prefer playing around with sin and they, they never quite take those next steps to grow and develop and really live the life that jesus is calling them to that 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 life of freedom in christ and that fullness of life some christians just become spiritually lazy and just can't be bothered to take those next steps to grow and to develop as a follower of Jesus. They're just kind of too comfortable with where they are. And some Christians I know, they know what God wants them to do, but they're a bit scared of what that next step of following Jesus might look like for them. 
And sometimes it's just easier, isn't it, just to stay where we are rather than stepping on and growing into fullness of relationship with Jesus. And it's so sad when Christians do this because trusting in Jesus isn't just meant to be about being saved from sin. It's not just meant to be about kind of hanging on grimly till Jesus comes again or until I die. That's kind of missing the point. It's meant to be about having life to the full. And if you're not having life to the full and enjoying Jesus and enjoying your salvation, there's something wrong. Can I challenge you this morning? If, if you've trusted in Jesus, but you know that you're not living that abundant life that Jesus wants you to live, then why not? What is it, do you think, in your heart? I, I can't answer that question for you, and this is something you just need to think about. But why is it that you're not living that abundant life that Jesus wants you to live? I'm not talking about being happy and, and life being amazing all the time and of course we're going to get sick and there'll be financial challenges and all those kind of things. It's not about our circumstances but about being in love with Jesus and just being blown away day by day by who he is and all that he's done for us. So what is it to use Jesus' picture is preventing you from stepping out of the, of the security of the sheep pen as it were and, and through Jesus going out into that amazing pasture so that you can have life to the full, real life. What is it perhaps in your life that's maybe holding you back? Maybe you're living that abundant life, and that's brilliant. But if you're not this morning, what is it that's holding you back? Is it, is it sin? Is it spiritual laziness? Is, is it a fear? Or perhaps it's something else? Rachel, it's been fantastic to get to know you, and Zach too, over the last few years, and just to see your faith in Jesus grow, and to see you get baptized this morning. And I think Rachel, in her own story earlier, kind of alluded to that, that she's living that abundant life. She's enjoying Jesus. It's, it's fantastic to watch that and see that in you. Can I encourage you, Rachel, this morning to keep pressing on, keep getting to know Jesus more and more, keep enjoying Jesus and that abundant life that he's got for you and, and he wants to keep you living in and keep following him day by day. Please don't stay in the comfort and the safety of the sheep pen, as it were, Please don't just kind of tick over or trundle along, which is tempting for us all to do as followers of Jesus. Step out in faith and go for it. Both of you, not just you, Rachel, but both of you. Step out in faith and go for it and live that exciting life of faith that Jesus wants you to live where you're trusting him each day for whatever great things he's going to do in and through you. And we're going to watch and we're going to watch and, and watch you guys in the years ahead. And I'm, I'm so excited to see what he's going to do in you and what he's already doing in you and through you. And who knows, God knows where he will lead you and what that will look like. But wherever he leads you, whatever that looks like, keep loving Jesus, keep enjoying Jesus. Jesus says that not only is he the gate, the means by which we can be saved and have life to the full, he also says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now the word good here doesn't mean kind of good in the sense of being good and nice and cuddly and fluffy, which is probably maybe how sometimes we think of this phrase, the good shepherd. Jesus isn't the good and nice and cuddly shepherd. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. The word good here means much more than that. It's, it, it's kind of in good in the sense of being true and right. So Jesus isn't the, the good and nice and cuddly and fluffy shepherd. He's the, the good and true shepherd who sacrificially lays his life down for the sake of the sheep that he wants to save. Jesus compares the religious leaders to being like the hired hands who run away the moment a wolf comes because they don't care about the people. And that verse should be, will come up on the screen for us there, where Jesus says, look, you know, the hired hands just run away. I'm not that person. I am the good shepherd, the true shepherd. And as the good and the true shepherd, Jesus laid down his life 
for the sheep. He laid down his life for us there on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross for us, he, he gave up his life for us, took the punishment for your sins, for my sins, for Rachel's sins, so that we could then have those sins forgiven and we could have that abundant life and, and go through Jesus as the gate to that abundant and eternal life that he offers us. And amazingly, once we put our faith and trust in Jesus and trust in him, we enter, according to Jesus here, and this is mind-blowing, we enter into the same level of relationship with Jesus that Jesus has with his Father. So the moment, Rachel, you put your faith and trust in Jesus, according to Jesus here, the relationship that you now have with Jesus is the same as the relationship or, or is equal to the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. Now, that's stunning. That's staggering, isn't it? Jesus says this in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So in the same way that Jesus knows us and we know Jesus if we've trusted in him, so Jesus knows God the father and God the father knows Jesus. And, and when Jesus talks here about knowing what he's referring to is having a deep and intimate relationship with him. He's not talking about knowing about him. This isn't kind of intellectual knowledge, which is maybe kind of your experience before that you were referring to this morning, Rachel. He's talking instead about us having a, an intimate, eternal and indestructible relationship with him. And once we trust in Jesus, the amazing truth is that we are given this equally intimate, eternal, and indestructible relationship with Jesus as he has with God the Father. Now that is mind-blowing, isn't it? It doesn't matter how far we as sheep might wander away from Jesus, our good and true shepherd. Once we know him, we will always be his. Because as, we see, as we'll see next week, when Stuart's speaking on in, in the next bit of John 10, Jesus says that nobody can snatch us out of his hand if we're his sheep because he and the Father are one. And although it's really important that we do stay close to our shepherd and we, and we listen to his voice and that we follow him, our relationship with God and our eternal salvation doesn't rely on us staying close to Jesus as our shepherd. Instead, it relies on the fact that Jesus is the good and the true shepherd. So Rachel, it doesn't it does matter how you live, but it, it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on the fact that Jesus is your true and good shepherd. And once we've trusted in Jesus, we can no more lose our relationship with Jesus than he can lose his relationship with God the Father. If we've trusted in Jesus, then because of his identity, this passage is all about Jesus' identity, because of his identity as the good and the true shepherd, our identity as his sheep is then eternally secure and cannot be changed, cannot be altered. However, that doesn't mean that our behavior as sheep doesn't matter or is inconsequential. Jesus speaks repeatedly in this passage about his sheep, those who've trusted in him, hearing his voice, knowing his voice, and following him wherever it is he leads them. But if you know anything about sheep, then you'll know that sheep are notorious, aren't they, for wandering off and going astray and getting stuck in ditches or getting their heads stuck in fences. And that's why God repeatedly uses the metaphor of us being like sheep, because we often behave like that, don't we? And the reason that that kind of thing happens to us as followers of Jesus is usually because we've stopped listening to our shepherd's voice. We've stopped listening to Jesus. Are you this morning listening for the voice of Jesus? Are you listening for the voice of Jesus in your life? Sometimes even though we are listening to Jesus' voice, we don't always like what he's saying to us, do we? And so we decide not to follow where he leads us. 
What has Jesus been saying to you recently? Or maybe phrase it differently, what is Jesus saying to you this morning? Are you following him wherever that might be, whatever that looks like for you? Or have you just been ignoring him? Even though we're his sheep, we can still behave really stupidly and we can listen to other voices or even listen to and follow the character that Jesus calls here the thief. And when we listen to and follow the thief, then our lives end up in a right mess, don't they? So can I challenge us all this morning to be listening to Jesus and not just listening, but actually following him wherever he leads us, whatever that looks like for you, whether that's at school tomorrow or at work in your office or in your home life, whatever that looks like. And Rachel, can I encourage and challenge you to make it a real priority in your life to listen to Jesus and to follow Jesus wherever it is that he leads you day by day. In this passage, Jesus presents himself to the Jewish authorities and to all those listening, and that includes us this morning, as the fulfillment of this great prophecy in Ezekiel 34, Jesus says, I am God's shepherd king. I am God come as the shepherd and the king. And the shepherd in the prophecy of Ezekiel 34 isn't just someone who cares for the people of Israel. The shepherd of Israel is also the ruler. He's the king. So when Jesus calls himself the good or the true shepherd, he's also calling himself the good or the true king. Jesus links himself to the Ezekiel prophecy and he claims that he is God. He is the shepherd king. Only this time he's not just the shepherd king of Israel because he says this, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there should be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus isn't just the shepherd king of any Jews that would put their faith and trust in him. He's also the shepherd king of any non-Jews that will put their faith and trust in him. And Jesus has then formed a new flock which is made up of all those who throughout history have put their faith and trust in him as their shepherd king and as the eternal gate that will bring them to eternal and abundant life. Putting our faith and our trust in Jesus means trusting him to be our shepherd and it means surrendering to him as our king. Jesus as the shepherd means that Jesus is our king. He's not just the fluffy good shepherd, he is our king. That's what it means for Jesus to be our shepherd. He is the shepherd king. When Jesus had finished speaking this, this is what we read. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus divided people then and Jesus divides people today. And if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus and surrendered your life to him as your shepherd king, I wonder what your response to Jesus is this morning. Jesus demands a response from everyone. And he doesn't leave us the option of sitting on the fence, not really sure who he is. He wants to be your gate to eternal life and to abundant life. And he wants to be your shepherd king. If like Rachel, you're someone who has trusted in Jesus, then can I challenge you this morning to, and encourage you to keep on listening to his voice and, and not just listening, but then to keep on following him wherever he's leading you, whatever that looks like for you, so that you can really live that abundant life that Jesus wants you to live with Jesus as your shepherd king. I'm going to pray and then the band are going to come and lead us in, in one final song. Just have a few moments just to kind of pause and reflect, a few moments of silence. Who do you say Jesus is this morning? Who is Jesus to you? 
Is he your shepherd? Is he your shepherd king? What's Jesus saying to you? What has he been saying to you recently? What's he saying this morning? Are you listening? Are you following? Are you living that abundant life? What is in the way of you living that abundant life, life to the full that Jesus offers and promises? Father, thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and you became our shepherd king. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and laid down your life for us, your sheep. Thank you, Lord, that loads of us here this morning can say, yeah, we've heard your voice and we are following you. We've entered in through the gate. Father, help us all, though, to not just enter in through the gate, but to enter back out again into that green pasture, that, that life to the full, that abundant life that you offer. And help us, Father, to live for you day by day, following your voice, following you as our great shepherd king. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that this morning they will make you and surrender you, surrender their lives to you as their great shepherd king. We thank you for your love to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you laid down your life for us. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.